no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World, where the facts are made up and the points don't matter. Uh, Adam, it's great to be with you again. I feel like it's been a long time. I know, yeah. Since we've had a chance to commiserate. Um, however, I'm very excited, and you're probably wondering why. Tell me. Because Facebook is going to fix my personal life. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, I... I, I I think I know what you're talking about because my wife was telling me about this in the car last night. <laughs> Is it true that Facebook has a dating app it's coming going, out? It's going to do a dating app so that all of that personal information that it was using against you to mess with your politics, it's now going to use for you so that you can find the perfect mate. This is perfect. I mean, because all of my friends on Facebook are just high school friends anyway, so I would love to be rematched <laughs> with my high school girlfriend. You know, like if, if the circle comes back around again. That would be terrifying, actually. Or, you know, that you'd find that all it matches you with are people who you've had <laughs> failed relationships with or something like that. It's like, no, yeah. I, know the, I know how this one ends. There's no need of doing this again i can't tell you how happy i am that i am so bloody old that i that this was not a thing i mean just a phone yeah. call was terrifying when yeah. i was a high school kid no that was I, enough, i've so. said this too i'm very very happy that i got married before dating apps um i mean obviously like online dating was a thing not for someone my age at the time and now it seems so mainstream and, and incredibly stressful yeah yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, it's again, it's sort of one of those things where when you think about it, uh, the the amount of free time that we had when we were younger has all evaporated because we now overschedule our kids. And then so it just kind of follows that all of these overscheduled things that would include, of course, your your, your social life and all that would follow. But, you know, it sort of like takes out the adventure of like having absolutely no clue if you were ever going to be socially successful or not, you know, until you kind of like <laughs> look back and said, ah, I, I'm not injured or dead and I still get along with most of my friends. And I've had, you know, one extremely disastrous relationship, which usually people do in high school or somewhere yeah. along the relationship. And then they kind of figure it out as they go along. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm being sarcastic. I'm not excited at all. I think it's totally <laughs> weird that Facebook has decided to go in this direction. And I just don't know if it's going to, uh, if that's going to help, um, in, in terms of how people feel about Facebook. Yeah. I mean, do you think it's sort of like a head fake? Like after we've had a couple months of, well, I mean, really a couple of years of incredibly serious conversations about the value of which Facebook may or may not bring to our society. They're, they're sort of doing the magician look over here trick by saying like, ah, but you know, we're just, it just, you know, kid stuff. It's dating apps and, and, <laughs> uh, and swiping right and left. And I, you know, well, I, you know, I actually, and this is going to be, I don't mean to get totally dark here, but I'll get a little dark here, that it actually allows me to find out about, you know, other people and bad things that have happened to them or bad things that have happened to third parties that we both know. Um, that's kind of the opposite of yeah. dating, right? Is finding yeah. out, oh, by the way, guess who died? You know, it's just kind of like a really weird, weird thing that's kind of an after effect of having these sort of like long tendrils of social connections reaching everywhere. And I just, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. I guess that um, like a, a Tinder is scared 
If, if there is a tender, wherever it is, it's scared, and mm. you know because this could be become the thing. But you know, it seemed to me again teaching people who are averse to Facebook because that's where they find their parents, that that that's the connection that needs to be reestablished is to that group. I don't mm. know if this is going to do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you think? I don't know. I'm just, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, on, online and that, that kind of social organization, I, I, I much prefer like the friend-to-friend structure for things, yeah. which sort or, of implants itself in high school and then stays with you your whole life. There you go, yeah. Or in middle school, I guess, I don't know if you had this, but we had actually a fundraising activity where you did sort of a, a data match type deal where you would take a quiz. Everybody in the school took a quiz. And if you wanted to see the results of who you were most like, um, you could buy the results right from the librarian. <laughs> um, kind of kind of bizarre, but I feel like, you know, it's it's all the same thing, right? It's there, the same story. You know, there are a lot of things that, that when... Um, uh, and I don't, I, it's funny, I ask my classes occasionally, do you still do this? Because there were like creepy things that were introduced when, when we were youngins that I think they thought was going to be educational in some way, but they had kind of this creepy undertone. Right. So like the, the lifeboat thing, I don't, I don't think we've talked about uh-huh. that. But okay, so this was an, um, basically, the, you were given a scenario and you had, and so the scenario was there are 12 of you, but oh, only sure. 10 people fit in the lifeboat. So you're going to have to explain why you have to stay, right? So so it's this kind of like Darwinian nightmare <laughs> where everybody has to come up with, well, I do brain surgery. So, you know, it's like whatever it is, you have to come up with this justification that allows you to stay on the lifeboat, knowing full well that this is going to render one of your 12 friends, you know, cut loose and off to sea to be shark food. Oh, so, this is terrible. And why, why they were doing this in like sixth grade, I don't know. No. It's like getting you set for, I think, and it was usually used in combination with reading Jack London for some reason so call of the wild <laughs> or to build a fire the story where the guy just thinks about you know you've you read that story yeah, yeah right so yeah. so he's just thinking about cutting open the dog to crawl inside to stay warm and the dog takes off and he knows he's dead at that point so i i don't know why there was such brutality involved in learning at that time but but i guess they still do stuff like that yeah sometimes. i mean no we've we've solved all problems those don't exist in our education yeah, system yeah, anymore no, everything's no. perfectly okay coming up uh later we have uh tracy anarella a documentary filmmaker um but first we will continue to rant for a, a few more minutes i wanted to get your take on uh on uh, it's it's a little bit old news now as as every news cycle this this one's like folded over like three or four times but i think that's what's most interesting about this was this particular story which is um last weekend was held the the white house press corps annual dinner for the second time uh our president found something else to do uh and this one was particularly interesting um for a, a number of different reasons um, but the one that I, I wanted to uh, particularly point out uh, was Michelle Wolf's specific uh, jabs at the media itself. Uh, you know, our the title of our podcast is Media in the End of the World. And part of it is sort of like a the idea of, of that title beyond sort of being a quote is kind of the tongue and cheek way and ways in which the media almost always wants us to think it is the, the, the end of the world. So we'll come back and watch tomorrow. Right. And one of the one of the things that she said, I will quote her is she said, uh, you guys are obsessed with Trump. Did you used to date him? Because you <laughs> pretend like you hate him. But I think you love him. I think what no one in this room wants to admit is that Trump has helped all of you. He couldn't sell steaks or vodka or water or college or ties or Eric. But he has helped you. He's helped you sell papers and your books and your TV. 
you helped create this monster and now you're profiting off of him. And if you're going to profit off of Trump, you should at least give him some of your money because he doesn't have any. <laughs> uh, I think so, I think is a great line, but but what what, you know, uh, our job as people who who cover how the media covers the media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, what's what's always fun after any of these these dinners, you know, which is that there's always sort of the hot takes afterwards of like what was the, you know, the most appropriate and most most inappropriate joke and who was taking jabs at at right? But then like this becomes a a real meta discussion in which I think the point is 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 really right. Um you know, even even within my own editorial scope of this podcast, it's like, yes, I think because the we want to cover the media and the media covers Trump so much that like those intersect often. But it's like I don't want to do that every single time that I touch a microphone is have to talk about uh, the president because I think that there's a lot of other interesting pieces in the media to talk right, about. Yeah, and often those then end up being kind of shoved by the wayside. Right. In the you know in the kind of like the the fire hose of stuff. That happens as a result of it. There was an interesting uh, response from the White House Correspondents Association. They issued a statement. Oh, really? And I, I just want to—I I just want to read this. And I think in order to frame it, in order to frame it, you have to think about every White House Correspondents Dinner you've ever seen. And then, like, so does this create an exception? So what they said was, last night's program was meant to offer a unifying message about our common commitment to a vigorous and free press, while honoring civility, great reporters, and scholarship winners. Not to divide people. Unfortunately, the entertainer's monologue was not in the spirit of that mission. So, like, I so mean, why did you hire a comedian? <laughs> well, why did you hire Hassan Minaj? Why did you yeah. hire uh, 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 Key and Peele? You know, yeah. they've they've got. The, I mean, there's this tradition of bringing in people who are they're they're. I mean, it's it's more of a roast, and I think people know that's what this event's going to be. And honestly, to some extent. Um, it it should be something where where I think the media will look at itself with that kind of like um, I mean I don't want to get too old school but this kind of like uh, Alexander Pope sarcasm about itself like it's just you shouldn't take yourself that seriously at those moments when you have an opportunity to you know in this idea that unifying message about our common commitment to a vigorous free press that's you know yeah okay but. Uh, that's not what this is. That's right. not what this event has ever been. Yeah. So the 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 draw and appeal of coming to this is listening to the jokes, right? Like mm -hmm. that's 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 the whole point of it. Particularly if it's you know the the one I remember was when um, uh, Keegan Michael Key did Luther. The you know the the uh, emotional explainer for Obama while Obama was standing there talking, <laughs> and it was just a you know kind of a brilliant moment, right. um, and you know those are kind of glorious things. There's but but the I mean the 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 tone of it and you know of course contraposing it. Not that we want to sink ourselves back into swampland, but was the Washington Michigan event that uh, uh, Trump held, um, which I guess for some people was maybe more interesting, but. Uh, but not for me. I, I would. The one thing I would say is that I think that we need to be very sensitive to discussions of appearances. And there, Michelle Wolf did fall into that a little right. bit. And, uh, you know, regardless of who you're talking about, I think I mean, I think when Bill Maher makes fat jokes about, you know, various politicians, I think it's 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 cheap. And I think I think we're a little further along than that. But that shouldn't call for the, you know, the politically correct police to come running out to yeah. Simon all down because there's such hypocrisy in doing that anyway. Yeah. How do you feel about the argument that she's making in that specific quote of that the, the, the press created this monster and now they're profiting off of it? 
I would agree with that. And it's it raises some really interesting questions because we have to keep in mind that our media system is so heavily commercially driven, and that means it has to deliver eyeballs or ears or whatever other commodity is going to let them do what they do, like you know Facebook is to some extent, and certainly all these commercial entities. They're just not going to have. It's one of those reasons that uh, that you know public broadcasting, national public radio, and and PBS, and what they do in terms of news and documentary is so important because they're not driven they're to some extent driven by making sure they have an audience but they're not totally driven by having to respond as quickly to what the you know the clickbait and the commercial draws and the kind of things that you know sadly cnn and msnbc and fox all have to function under what do you think um i think it's an interesting point that she's trying to make and i i do i i struggle with it because i think we're in in an era of really really good journalism i think investigative journalism is that part of its peak but i almost think it's like you know kind of to her point is like you you set the ball on the tee and now you're hitting home runs and you're kind of proud of yourself um but you know like this is this is sort of like you you've also constructed the situation which feels really easy to kind of take advantage of right i was gonna say yeah it does feel very easy and effortless to sort of just do this over and over again like guess what he said today yeah and you know to actually get beneath and around that so that you're talking about things that are greater significance um, is just a, a, a challenge they have to take up. And as, as news organizations, they have to be very careful that they're not sort of following where they're led, yep. which is, you know, kind of always a scary problem. Other things that are going on? Well, I one of the things I wanted to mention, just because of some things that I've been doing in a class, I've been uh, uh, teaching a class this semester in horror and identity. And I did want to mention uh, and recommend to our, our uh, to our listeners uh, two short films that can be found online. Because um, one of the interesting things in this class is I was interested in Native American horror, horror films, right? Scary movies. And uh, I actually found a couple of short films that I wanted to, to share with the audience and recommend. Uh, they're both Canadian short films. They're native produced and directed. And uh, one of the, this is one of the interesting things that kind of follows from what I was just suggesting about the commercial environment. Part of the funding for uh, at least one of these films was from, a, um, from uh, the Canadian government who, you know, who uh, sort of like in the, uh, uh, in other cultures, they kind of reserve radio space, screen space and things like that for local production. And so um, what they did was they have actually worked on sponsoring a couple of films. Uh, These are shorts, but they're still pretty fabulous. One is called Wakening, W-A-K-E-N-I-N-G. And it's directed by uh, a woman named Dennis Goulet, or Dani Goulet, D-A-N-I-S-G-O-U-L-E-T. And you can find this on uh, YouTube pretty easily under the just under the title Wakening. And then you can use her name, Dani Goulet, also. It was a um, played at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2013. And it's kind of a fabulous integration of uh, a dystopian environment, a uh, woman hero, and uh, a, a, a legendary creature that is part of the mythology uh, of her tribe. And and it's a, it's just a really it's a ten minute film, and it's just fabulous. And I love films uh, that end up in movie theaters. And there's a part yeah. of this that ends up in a movie theater that's really I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to ruin the end or anything like that. But there's just political comeuppance in it. So 
Uh, that's one that's worth seeing. Um, the uh, and that I would say that that's probably something that I would be careful for kids that are too young because it is kind of a little bit scary. Um, but uh, but the other one, which I would definitely not recommend to anyone who is young, um, because it's a very uh, kind of graphic film, is a Jeff Barnaby film. It's a short film called File Under Miscellaneous, and it is very graphic in terms of violence, but it tells an interesting story. Again, it's kind of a dystopian environment. It looks and feels kind of like the Blade Runner world in a way, and it has to do, it's got a um, um, it's got a, a, a poem that it uses for the text that it's working with, and it's just a, a, it's just a very creepy film about the desire to remove your identity that's been kind of working against you. So I think, and, and, and of course the world of short films is amazing because there are all these people who have an idea that's a great story for 10 minutes. Minutes. And so it's. I think it's always worth you know playing around on uh, YouTube to to find some of these and watch them and spend some time with them. Jeff Barnaby uh, did a full length film called Rhymes for Young Ghouls in 2013. File Under Miscellaneous was in 2010. He's got a film coming out this coming year called Blood Quantum, and he is a uh, native filmmaker. Um, he is a Canadian, and Rhymes for Young Ghouls was a, a pretty well known film. But he's somebody whose stuff is worth watching. So try to dig up his film. Uh, that's called File Under Miscellaneous. So Very interesting. And I'll make mm-hmm. sure to put links to those in our show notes. I'm okay. trying to think of what a U.S. government-funded horror movie looks like. <laughs> Ten-minute one. It, yeah, you know, it would probably look like Duck and Cover. Mm. You know, the, 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 the film that you can find famously that, you know, was the training film about what to do in case of a nuclear assault. Don't look at the flash. Get under your desk. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Again, it's, it's sort of like... Uh, uh, you know, potentially those are those are things that our culture could get involved in um, in terms of helping people who otherwise don't have access to the to the ability to make to tell these stories um, can tell them and, and make them available and the distribution mechanism of the internet just changes that entirely so anyway awesome. just a little side note about a couple of things that I'd stumbled across recently I think are really worth spending some time with and if you uh, have seen any other interesting Native American films, short or full length, uh, particularly horror stuff, because that's kind of what I'm interested in, in case it hasn't become clear, uh, drop us a note and uh, we'll we'll try to talk about it here uh, on the program. You were lucky enough. I was not able to make it, but you were able to have a guest in here. We're about to play that interview uh, itself. We had documentary filmmaker Tracy Anarella. Um, why don't you set that up really quickly? Sure. Yeah. Tracy Anarella uh, is a documentary filmmaker. She's out of uh, uh, Brooklyn, and she has had a pretty meteoric career. She's been involved in documentary for the past five or six years. She was involved in um, so she was actually a, a trained as a biologist originally, um, but she has a, a full-length film that's doing the uh, the uh, festival circuit right now called Not Black Enough. And the conversation that we have is primarily about some of the issues that come up uh, in terms of uh, how people talk about conceptions of you know what counts as authentic African American culture, and uh, it has some uh, kind of amazing music passages in it, and some really interesting interviews with rap artists and pop singers, and uh, African American intellectuals, and um, and it was a really great conversation. We were very happy to have her here, and um, we also talked about some work that she's planning on doing in the future. So, very cool. All right, well, with that, we will get to the interview. Glad you're with us on Media and the End of the World. We are happy to have here as a guest 
talking to us about her career as a documentary filmmaker, Tracy Anarella, who is um, connected to a, a very important film that's out right now called Not Black Enough. And we'll be talking about that and some of her other work. Tracy, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. So um, you, you you were, uh, we, we spoke earlier, you were kind enough to speak to one of my classes earlier today, and the students were quite engaged with talking about your documentary work. Can you talk about how you got started in documentary? Sure. Um, I got started in documentary filmmaking pretty late in life. Um, I didn't start making films until I was 50. And I'm 55 now, so that makes five years that I've been doing this. And I, I don't want to say I stumbled upon uh, finding my pat, my new passion in life, but I, my partner in life was someone who was made music for TV and films, and I really, I loved what he did, and occasionally I'd work with him. And at the time, I was looking to uh, change change careers, because my background was in the sciences, and I didn't want to go back into that area. So he suggested, why don't you, if you, you love what you do, you're good at it, Every you know a lot of people in this industry now, so why don't you do it? So I learned how to edit first, because I figured out that that was the easiest way to you know, a nice vehicle for getting myself into whether I was going to do narratives or whether docs, but I knew I really wanted to do docs. That's, so that's of course the end of the production process. So right. You started, uh, but I started at the back, yeah. but, but I always do. That's the story of my life. I yeah. started the back end and moved forward. Uh -huh. So, um, so yeah, I, I took a little editing workshop and learned how to edit videos and then, um, the, the rest is history. And then I learned, how, then I took a documentary, uh, workshop because I didn't want to be an editor. I found out the life of an editor and, you know, not that I'm putting it down. It just it didn't it didn't work well with me to be able to, to have to stay in a dark room and by myself all day long. So I thought, you know, I'd, I'd like to be able to I, I want to know how to edit and I want to be able to edit my own work. So mm -hmm. um, that's that's where it all started. Was there a particular documentary that you saw at some point that got you interested in the form earlier? Um, what I love, it's called Muscle Shoals. That's uh -huh. my favorite. It's about, you know, this, a music studio in, in, in Muscle Shoals. It's in Alabama. I mean, there's several documentaries that 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 I love and, 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 and loved all my life. And But that was the one that I thought, I can I can do this. Not Maybe not that well yet, uh -huh. and I will get there. Did you see the Wrecking Crew documentary? No. Oh, you should see that because it's a similar kind of thing. It's about the the session musicians who were playing on all of these pop hits in the 60s. Right. And it was this group. So it's like, you know, the, the, this guitarist and the bass player, a woman who's a bass player and the drummer. There was a group of, I think, a dozen of them who would rotate in sessions. But they're on like, you know, every Sonny and Cher hit you ever heard. Oh, they're I the have ones to who, see that. It's, yeah. and, it's a, and it's a great portrait of them as right. musicians. So, oh, I, I have to yeah, see that. It's really good. So, yeah, so Muscle Shoals, what I loved about it was the, I guess the B-roll is what really grabbed me in that film and how he set it up with, with you know, the fields in Alabama and he, how he told his story about how he, the gentleman who, who, you know, started the whole uh, music studio, how he got started. And it just grabbed me. And it was at that point that I thought, I, I, I think I can do this. I would love to. I'm a great storyteller. And this is what I really want to do. And a lot of times if it's what you want to do and there's a passion for it. Nine out of ten times it worked, so mm -hmm. it's it's worked for me. Good. Well, let's talk about the film. So, so not black enough. Not black enough. Not black. Yeah, enough. I got to make sure I get because I That's right. was mentioning I've been calling it. Am I black enough for you, or some other variation exactly. on that earlier? But not black enough. Not black enough, and not black enough is <clears throat> excuse me, is my story. 
but not black enough, is about uh, this challenge that exists in, in, in many communities. But for me, because I'm an African-American, I can only talk about it from my perspective as a black woman. And I talked about this existing in the black community. And the, it's the problem of our putting ourselves in this self-imposed box of determining blackness. And if you make the decision to step outside of that box, be it you marry someone out of the race, you choose to go to not so much anymore about going to college because there's many generations of African-Americans now who've gone to college. So mm -hmm. it's not so much of that, but it, it still exists. Um, you listen to country music. You listen to opera. You listen to music that, that's not hip hop. It's not blues. It's not jazz. You do things that are betraying your race and you're thought of as not black enough. Mm -hmm. And I've been told this so many times in my life that a lot of times when you, you tell your story, tell your own story, that makes for a great, sometimes great narrative that's based on, on a true story or a doc. So that's why I decided to do not black enough because so many times in my life I was called an Oreo or uh -huh. not black enough. When, so when did it, do you remember when it started? I mean, the first time? Yes, there's. I was, I'm curious how old you were and how you processed it, because I think it's kind of an interesting situation one finds oneself in to be told you're not who you are. Sure. No, it was at a very early age, and I was actually uh, relaying this story. I was telling some of the students in, in a class yesterday that even as old as I am now, I remember it as if it were yesterday. And we were a, all playing on a playground, and we were taking turns on a sliding board. And, you know, you line up, and then you climb up the ladder, and then this girl comes in after we were all playing by the rules and waiting our turn. She comes in and, you know, sponges in line and, and goes ahead of everybody else. And I say, hey, wait, you know, that, that's not fair. We're all waiting our turn and you just came and you cut in line. And she said, well, who do you think you are? You think? And she, she was, a, you know, darker complexion than I was. And her hair was not the same texture as mine. It was her hair was a little kinkier than my hair. And I mean, which is not something I was thinking about at the time. I was just like, I was just annoyed that the girl was cutting in line. And that's just, you don't do that. So she said, oh, so what's wrong with you? Who do you think you are? You think you're not black? You know, because you can put curls in your hair because your light's getting like, wait a minute. And all my friends are like, what's going on? And she goes, you think you're white? And I think, well, I, no, we're just upset that you cut in line. <laughs> what, what does my hair or what? I, I don't even understand. We're all the same. And, and I, so I was thrown by that and I went home and I was about eight or nine at the time. And that was the first time that I experienced it. And, and I was I was confused. I was floored. And my, as were my friends, because we're like, what is she talking about? Because when she said, you think you're white, we're all like, there are no white kids over here. We, we didn't understand what she meant. So mm -hmm. that was the first time that my parents had to sit me down and explain what this was and what was really happening here. So it was, I was very young when it first uh -huh. started. And it didn't. It it still has not stopped. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's an. It, I think it's a really kind of interesting cultural problem. We were talking about it earlier, because of how it exists as sort of like something that's got this in group part, and then also the out of group part, right. the, that component of it. And you said that uh, people who've seen the film that you've made about this, that there are different reactions that you get based on you know the the cultural background of the people who you're talking to. Yeah, predominantly, most most of the African-Americans who've seen the film, you know, you get the, like, oh, this is, thank goodness you're telling my story. Or you can even see them, you know, because as a filmmaker, when you, you, you've seen your film 5,000 times, so you stop watching it and you're, you watch the audience. So, and I can see people's heads and they're shaking like, 
yes, yes, someone's finally telling my story. This is what I've dealt with all my life. That's about 75% of the audiences of, of, of African-Americans that have seen my film. And there's that 25% that I don't know if they're angry that they have experienced this and this is something that I should have not, I shouldn't have, have, have had the nerve to, as they say, have the nerve to make the film. So they're, they, they're very angry with me for mm-hmm. making the film. And I find that out in a Q&A. Um, there was a Q&A that I went to in D.C. where it was 45 minutes of people attacking me. And it really? was just, it was, it was to the point where I just, even the programmer said, all right, this is enough. You, you guys are not even asking any questions about the film. You're just using this as an, it's not even constructive criticism. It's attack. And, and were, they, were they attacking you because of the idea or because you did that idea? They were attacked. It was, it was both, but it was more, who are you? to think that you can make this film. Uh-huh. Um, the one woman said to me, there are, there are stories about the Moors. There are stories about, I'm like, then why don't you make the movie about, <laughs> that's not what I set out to make. So I guess they were just, I, I felt like I, I, as I said in your class early, earlier today, that I think I put a mirror up in their faces and, and a lot of people probably felt that they've experienced it and they were angry that I had the courage to talk about it. Because mm-hmm. one woman said, why would you air our dirty laundry like that? Why couldn't you just keep it to yourself? Uh-huh. So. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a real thing and kind of, uh, when you were making it, I, I was thinking about this earlier when you were thinking about audiences. When you were making it, were you conscious of the 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 culture you were targeting your approach to? Was there a specific intention you had? For the most part, I really wanted my end goal was that I wanted to touch younger, younger people and, and ultimately have this be a part of school curriculum because I figured if you can work with the young kids and start early, maybe we can chip away at this. I can never make it go away. I'm just one person and that's going to take years and years and years and it may never go away. So <clears throat> I knew I was going because the people that I dealt with in D.C., I know that kind and I've dealt with them before. Uh-huh. So I knew... I was going to run into that, and I wasn't trying to talk to them. I wasn't trying. I wasn't trying to change their opinion or change, you know, their view on this. Um, so I was. I was just trying to chip. My, my goal was to chip away at a problem that I think is prevalent. It's pervasive in the black. We've got enough problems. So if we can get rid of this one, like the song says, "I got ninety nine problems," but now you're not. Yeah. You're, you're not one of them. If I could give us only ninety eight problems, then I would be better off. So that was that was my goal and that was my hope. So I guess I was it was a it was a broad net that I was throwing out of, of people that I was trying to, you know, affect. The, the demographic was pretty broad, but mm-hmm. I really wanted it to to benefit younger groups. And and I'm trying very hard to get like a teaching guide um, to go along with the film. Uh huh. There's a is it. Um... Is it the, the, the kind of thing where I, I, I just share that frustration that, and I, I've hit a point now in my life where I go, yeah, this problem will be solved, but I'm going to be long dead before. Yeah. And it's, and it's kind of a sad admission, it is. That, but you know, given what's happened over the last couple of years and where you feel like you've been kind of drifting backwards without, you know, it's sort of like unintentional moonwalking yeah. to these, into the, this kind of uh, situation. Um, and I and of course the the trick is to not lose hope, right? You have right. to believe that people are actually capable of of thinking. Oh yeah, maybe, 
Um, maybe that's not such a good thing. It seems like a lot of it's wrapped up around the notion of authenticity, though, right? I mean, that's what they think is if you're 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 posing or pretending to be something that you're not. So, and that's funny that you say that because there's a uh, character, a character, a subject in the film that's interviewed. His name is Petey Pablo, and Petey Pablo was a big rapper in the '90s, and then did a little something trying to take a gun on a plane. <laughs> And he got caught. A little so, something. A little something yeah. that you shouldn't do. And <laughs> so he had to serve a little bit, of, a little bit of time. And that took him out of the, the music scene. And, and, you know, and once you're out, people forget you. Petey, along with uh, Henry Louis Gates, those were the two most prolific voices I had in the film. And there's a part, and this speaks to what you're saying. Petey said, the problem with us as African-Americans is that, you know, a lot of us don't know our history, and when we do know our history, we, we're stuck in our history. He's like, you have to look at who you are as an African-American and realize. And he actually said, whether you're African-American, whether you're Hispanic, whether you're Mexican, whether you're in, whatever you are, you cannot be something that you're not. Just be true to yourself. And he said, it's as simple as that. And he said, and other people are always going to try to tear you down or tell you that you're not part of what what their idea is of blackness or being an in because I even have in the film, I have um, people tell this crab joke where, you know, there's a bucket of crabs and don't worry about the top ones climbing out because the bottom ones will pull them back (laughs) down. So I have people tell the joke in Tagalog, tell it in Spanish, tell it in Hindi, tell it uh, in Portuguese, because I want to show that this is a human issue and we all, you know, all cultures experience this experiences, but I can only tell my story because I'm African-American, but PD does say, and, and Henry Lewis says it in his own way. It's all, it's not, it's this thing about being authentically black. What is authentically black? It's yeah. like, just be who you are and understand, know your history, No, understand what we've been through and who we are and where we are right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, well, there, you know, there's a, 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 in, inside of all the acknowledgement of privilege and everything like that. One of the things that I was thinking as we were talking about this earlier was that because I come from a working class background and part of what's built into a working class background is this kind of like insult culture, right? Where and it took me a long time to realize that the purpose of it was to try to make sure that people were not thinking they were better than their group. Right. Right. So, yeah. But. That's where my mom helped me out with that story I told you about. And that's, it's, it's, what you're talking about is, is this being not black enough. It's their insecurity of, you're not better than I am. You, you had a chance to, to, to move out of this social level of, you know, like my, my ex-husband was from Rochester and a lot of the people in the area where he grew up, they only, they worked, I shouldn't say only, they decided, um, I I don't want to go off to college. I, I, I don't know why you would go to college. Nothing comes of that. So a lot of the next generation is like, I need more than than this. I need to be more, do more, see more of the world. And then a lot of people are in his neighborhood are like, well, you know, who do you think? You think you're better than I? But that's yeah. your insecurity that you chose not to do that. Mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. this whole pr- that's that's what not black enough is all about. Mm-hmm. The one of the things that um, that I've thought it's been interesting about the whole documentary world in addition to all of its challenges and interesting stuff is it seems like a really good place for women to get access to the tools to tell stories is that is that something you recognize that's something you experience um it's 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 funny that i haven't really thought about that but 
Um, in the last class where you, 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 we were talking, um, I was telling kids about, we were discussing about marketing and how you market yourself and how you find out about grants. So I belong to a lot of, um, on social media, I make sure I am part of a lot of women's groups mm -hmm. um, on Facebook, um, on, wherever I can, because women really look out for each other. And I'm finding through women in documentary filmmaking is where I'm finding opportunities about grants and about other festivals and about other opportunities for my documentary. So that's the only area where I, I'm finding, but you're right. I do believe it is giving women more tools um, to get out there. But for me, I mean, and I'm not saying it's all about me, but I mean, with women, that's what I'm seeing yeah, is that, yeah. that women, it's that sisterhood that's really, mm -hmm. really trying to push women out there and get more women as directors. Like this, this one uh, group that I belong to, she, she said, you know, there's a movie, the, this, this uh, director's looking for a camera person. She only wants a woman. Now, things may swing the whole other way where you're like, uh oh, it's all women now. There are no no men out yeah, there. I'm not, I'm not so worried about that happening too quickly. Yeah, yeah. It's not gonna you know, happen yeah, too quickly. Hollywood industry isn't really right. Oh you know, yeah. Yeah. So. Until there's like, you know, more than one woman cinematographer right. <laughs> shooting a narrative fiction film. Exactly. I'm not not too concerned about that. But I've just always thought, you know, when I was uh reading about history of documentary, there's just been that's one place where women cinematographers have found a lot of work. Yeah. Um, so they are very successful shooters, very successful. And and it ends up being, and the saddest part to me is it just ends up being all these stories that aren't being told. Yeah. And that's, you know, just kind of a loss in general. So um, uh, what other project is your, is, is occupying your attention these days? Oh, I, before I get to that, I, I should mention, um, so we're, since we're talking about this film, where can people see it? Um, at the Gaylord I don't know what the name of the auditorium. Well, no, I meant online. Actually. Oh, oh yeah. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, online, um, it's on Amazon Prime. Uh -huh. So if you have Amazon Prime, that you can. I mean, it's going to be other places, but right now, that's the the, the one place you can go and uh -huh. see it if you belong to Am or you subscribe to Amazon. Okay, and so then, what else do you have for us in the future? I am. I haven't started shooting because I'm at the point where I'm trying to secure funding for my next doc, which is actually the idea precipitated out of uh, a Q&A for Not Black Enough. And I was in Waco, Texas at, uh, for a screening with some Baylor University um, students. And some kids after the screening came up to me and said, you know, in Not Black Enough, you, you, it was great and we got a lot out of it and we loved what you did, but you touched on the N-word and, and, and how, you know, how it's become, people have become desensitized to the use of the word and it's used in such a casual way. Um, we don't understand why you'd even waste time with that because there's, using the N-word now is no big, big deal. And I was so taken by that, being 55 and knowing that when I was 20 in their age and someone would call me the N-word, it wasn't for the right, it wasn't for, it wasn't a, a, like you're my buddy, my friend, my, you know. So um, I decided I really, really wanted to set out and explore what has happened with this word and why, why it's come to that and, and you know, have... I want to have some heavy celebrities in it, so it's going to take some money. So that's that's the tough. I'm trying uh -huh. to get funding for that. So how do you how do you engage with the notion of political correctness when people use that idea? Is that something that enters that you that you have to deal with when you're thinking about you know what's the because uh, that seems to be the the 
kind of the counter argument is that, you know, people feel like their ability to express themselves has been restricted because, you know, honestly, you know, just between you and me, since we're the only ones here for the right, podcast, right. it's like they, they think it, that they should be allowed to say things that without any consequences, you know. Well, what I this is where I've learned from my mom who grew up I and mean, she's no longer with this and I miss her so much and she never got a chance to see what I'm doing with film. But she used to always say to me, honey, when when a racial situation comes up and someone's because I, I I've experienced this and I experienced it in high school where someone I thought was a really good friend of mine. Um, she heard some other kids using the term who happened to be black they were using it with each other and I guess she heard it and she thought well they're friends they're kind of using it back and forth so that makes it okay makes it okay and this was way back then so it's you know now it's it's a totally different thing and she used it on me and she said well you know you nigger you know she used it like that and it was it it hurt and I was trying to explain to her she's like I was well I thought it was a cool way I should be able, since they do it, I should be able to express myself without any consequence. And so I was, and even though, as I said, this was many, many years ago, I, my mom, I was trying to tell her how frustrated I was. She goes, listen, I'm a lot older than you, and I've been dealing with this word and, and, and being on the receiving end of it for many, many years. And she goes, when I get in a debate about it, and she didn't experience the casual use of it that we deal with now. And she said, and if I'm dealing with someone who's not black and I'm trying to explain to them that this is not expressing yourself, this is not a, a way of you, sh you, nobody should use this word and they can't understand it, I turn it around. I flip it on them. And she's like, let's flip it. So she said, if that person happens to be Jewish, that person happens to be Mexican, there are painful words and racial words and painful situations that each race or each, you know, that, that you can hone in on. And she goes, so for instance, if I ran around, you know, I, I don't need to, 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 to use those words. And she goes, and I flip it. And I try to find the most painful way of getting that person and say, but that hurts, right? So, and I'm expressing myself by using that against your race. So how does that feel? Mm -hmm. So that, that was something that my mom taught me. I don't like to use it that much, but if I'm using it with somebody who is is I use it with someone who's white, but with blacks, it's a tough, it's a tough argument because um, Jay Z is a main, you know, he uses it a lot, and he said I, I'm going to keep using it, and mm -hmm. I don't. We've taken it back, but how can how can you take something back that you never owned? You yeah. know, as Toni Morrison would say. Mm -hmm. So that's the argument I have. Like, how can you say we're taking that word back? We never, we never had, we never owned that word, uh -huh. yeah. you know? So I have different ways that I'm going to deal with it with white people than different ways that I'm going to deal with it with African, with blacks. So uh -huh. that's it. I think it's a fascinating subject. I'm really interested to see because it's, it's hot button. I mean, oh, it gets yeah. people going. Yeah. I was thinking about uh, a friend of mine uh, made a film about native American mascots and the yeah. one specifically, um, this is Jay Rosenstein who made a film called in whose honor, which was about the uh, native American mascot at the university of Illinois. And that continues to be an issue there because they actually uh, did away with the mascot. And I think 2004 um, partially as a result of his film, I think I would argue, um, but they didn't replace it with anything. So it ended up creating this vacuum, and so this is sort of like 
the ghost of the mascot keeps showing up. You know, it it can't be gotten rid of because there wasn't anything that people could kind of shift their energies to. So some of the, and and it's not that that in and of itself is the wrong thing, but it's just that it's so complicated when you're talking about things that may cause pain in other people that you have to experience empathetically. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. Well, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. This was great. Yeah. And, and uh, again, I'd strongly recommend go and check out the film on Amazon Prime. It'll be worth your time. Thank Thank you you so much. Yeah, take care.